Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War history group. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 11th of April 2022. This is one of two episodes I'm recording to mark the 250th episode of the podcast. We've been going for around five years and this is the 250th official episode of the podcast. Now in the first one I talk Australian historian and author Professor Robin Pryor about the Great War career with the British General Sir Henry Rawlinson. Robin spoke to me from his home in Australia. Robin welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and your interest in Henry Rawlinson and the Great War? Yeah, it was a, a long uh, uh, path to, to Henry Rawlinson for, for us. Um, I'd written my PhD on Churchill's World Crisis as history, and I was looking for another, um, uh, another thing to do. I was working at this stage not as an academic, but in Parliament as a researcher. And uh, Trevor Wilson and I thought, why don't we do an edition of Henry Rawlinson's diaries? I'd come across them in my PhD work and he'd come across them in myriad faces. Of, yeah, so we were looking for another project. We thought, oh, we'll do an edition of his diaries, you know. And um, when I was looking at the paperwork for that, I saw that there was this thing called a uh, Australian Research Council Fellowship, which would employ me for three years. So instead of applying for $5,000 uh, for an edition of his diaries, we applied for $125,000 for my salary and we got it. Uh, to do a full-blown uh, study of, of this man. Why did we want to do Henry Rawlinson? Because we'd both come across a couple of entries in his diary and a couple of documents in Churchill College that seemed to indicate that in, in his first major battle, the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle, March 1915, he had actually calculated some artillery statistics on how many guns he wanted to fire how many shells to destroy uh, the German uh, defences. And we thought, my God, we've discovered the unsung hero of the First World War, a man who was clearly held down by Haig and those above him. That was our impetus. So to set the scene, can we start with Rawlinson's early life and career? Yeah, we had a bit of a look at that. Uh, he, was, uh, he was hunting uh, dacoits in Burma in the 1890s. Uh, then he went to the Boer War and had a, had a reasonable war in, in that um, not many people enhanced their reputations in that war. He was one of the few who did. But we soon decided actually what we wanted to do was study him as a commander on the Western Front. Um, that's where our interest was immediately uh, sparked. And so we decided to look at him in 1914, uh, when he was part of one of Churchill's more harebrained schemes to relieve Antwerp, and he was given the 7th Division to do that. He never got there. Um, the whole thing was rather a fiasco. But um, we soon honed in on this stuff on the Western Front, um, starting in February 1915, where they were planning the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle, he and Haig. And we thought, this is the dynamic duo, uh, what went wrong? 
I'm not sure we know the answer to that even now. <laughs> so how has Rawlinson been treated by historians sort of over the last hundred years since his um, since, the, since the Great War? Look, my view is he's got less than his due, um, but there are there are reasons for that. Uh, for a start, um, Haig was the obvious person to take over from John French when the government decided to get to, to change the commander in chief. Uh, Rawlinson was never in that hunt. In fact, he was very pro Haig and went around London speaking to everybody he could, including the king, um, to make sure they came to the right decision. Uh, i.e. appointed Douglas Haig. So he was never in the, in the hunt for the top job. But I think had he got it, he may well have performed um, slightly better than Haig. Um, there are indications in his career that that would have been the case. So I think less than is due, uh, all told. But we'll discuss reasons why that might, that might be the, uh, the consensus among historians uh, as we go on. Well, let's start with his early career. Now, in 1915, Rawlinson is the commander of Fourth Corps and he plans the yeah. Battle of Neuve-Chapelle in March of that year. Can you tell us yes. about his plans, his reasoning and the outcome of the battle and what lessons he learned? Yeah, it's an interesting battle, this one. Uh, this is the first British trench warfare battle, really, of the uh, First World War, the Western Front. And Rawlinson goes about it in a quite a scientific way. He looks at the defences that the Germans have put up, which are pretty rudimentary, but still there are trenches there and there are barbed wire in front of them and, 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 and so on. And he comes to the conclusion that you could calculate how many shells it would take to knock down a yard or so of this trench. You then multiply that by the front that you wish to attack on and you get the number of shells. Then you've got to calculate the time uh, in which you want to fire these. He wanted a hurricane bombardment, a short, quick, brutal one. And then he calculates from that the number of guns. And there are over 300 guns in this quite narrow front battle assembled by Rawlinson. Haig is going along with all this and making some calculations of his own. So here we have the dynamic duo doing scientific calculations uh, on exactly how you deal with a trench in trench warfare. And we thought this is a pretty encouraging start. The problem comes when Haig starts to elaborate on the plan. And this is not just going to be at Neuve-Chapelle. This is going to be a constant throughout the war. Haig decides that capturing the village of Neuve-Chapelle, knocking down the German defences in front of it, is not sufficient. What he wants is the Aubert Ridge behind, several miles behind the Chapelle. And the only way he can get there is to use the only weapon of exploitation. So he thinks that he's got the cavalry. This is where the problem comes. And, and this is where their calculations go out the window. If you're successful in knocking down those trench defences, what chance do you have of quickly exploiting that break in, as it were, into a breakthrough. How do you actually do that? Uh, how can you prevent German reserves with machine guns, artillery and the like from coming up faster than your troops uh, can get through, either infantry or, uh, in Haig's case at Neuve-Chapelle, um, they try for three or four days to get the cavalry through. 
And what lessons did Rawlinson take from this battle? Well, this is the interesting part, Tom. Um, almost looking at the next battle, um, Bear Ridge uh, and so on, almost no lessons seem to have been learned. Do they do these artillery calculations for their next battle? No, they do not. Or if they do, uh, it's been lost uh, to history. Um, do they uh, persist with this kind of scientific approach at their next big battle after Aubert Ridge uh, at Luz? No, they don't do that either. Um, they, Rawlinson is aware that at Luz they don't have the guns per yard of trench attack to make any serious inroads there. But then he seems to think that gas will do the job for them, um, not perhaps realising that poison gas, though it might be sharp, can't cut barbed wire. So what we've got for the rest of 1915 is a, a pair of commanders who came up with a formula which was successful. They knocked down those um, uh, defences in front of the village of Neuve-Chapelle and captured the town. What we have are two people who did that and then don't seem to have drawn any lessons from it at all. There are no surviving artillery calculations or even an awareness that artillery is now the determinant of victory, not the cavalry, not the infantry, uh, unless the artillery have first done their job. Do you think there is, I mean, this is an aside, but do you think there's an institutional problem in the British Army at this time? Because they are trying new things that, you know, they use a mine at Alders Ridge, they use a night attack at Festival and obviously gas at Luz. But do you think there's something in the BEF which means it isn't, it's not yet capable of learning and processing these, these rules? Because if we're just relying on Rawlinson and Haig to come up with the clever ideas, that's a great burden for two commanders to carry. It is, it is. Um, it's interesting that they are the two that conduct most of the 1915 battles. Um, they're, 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 these offensives are not, as it were, uh, spread around uh, in 1915. But if we look at other commanders on the Western Front in 1915, for example, the British uh, approach to the German gas attack at Ypres, we find no great intellects at work. Um, Plumer in the uh, Ypres salient um, is obsessed with recapturing every inch of ground they lose, though in fact a lot of the inches of ground they are losing uh, is resulting in flattening the salient i.e. making it easier to hold with less troops. Um, so there's, there's no other people on the Western Front um, that seem to be in advance of Rawlinson and Haig in any of their thinking. And, of course, there's no one at the War Office either because one of the great faults in, in the British system in 1914 was that anyone with any intellect at all left London and went with the army to France. Uh, leaving definitely the second 11 back in uh, in charge. I mean, there's no equivalent of, of uh, Allenbrook, need, needless to say, but there's no equivalent of Dill either uh, that we have in the Second World War, uh, intelligent generals uh, at the heart of things in London. Uh, we have Wolf Murray, or Sheep Murray, as Churchill insisted on calling him, um, in London with no ideas whatsoever. I'm just wondering, what about learning from the French? Because they seem to be doing, you know, a similar sort of learning curve and they have various campaigns in Artois and Champagne, as far as I can recall. And, you know, yes. they seem to be making, quotes more progress, maybe because they lose more men. Is there any sort of sense that the BEF, you know, is learning from our French colleagues in 15? No, 
uh, none at all in 1915. <laughs> there is absolutely zero interaction between the British and the French. I mean, the BEF is part usually of a larger French uh, uh, campaign uh, at Luz, certainly, um, and at Aubert Ridge to some extent as well. Um, but is there any interaction between them? Uh, no, there isn't. Um, not that you can discern either in uh, looking at uh, detailed diaries to find out if they're talking to the French or in anything that they do that they might have gleaned from the French. Um, at this stage of the alliance, this is a dialogue of the deaf. They're not talking. So let's move on to 1916. Now, Rawlinson in um, early, early 16, I think, gets appointed the new commander of the 4th or the new 4th Army. And he plans yes. British offensive actions on the Somme uh, during the summer of 1916. Can you tell us about his plan and the planning process and how the attack, attack went and what lessons were learned from the 141 day of the Somme? 141 day battle of the Somme, I should say. Yes. It, the Somme, the planning uh, period is, is intensely interesting because what we have is a, a plan by the new Fourth Army commander for the new commander in chief for an attack on the Somme that seems to be reasserting the principles uh, of Neuve-Chapelle. Uh, Rawlinson is determined to take just the German first line at the Somme, uh, only to a depth of about 3,000 yards. Um, not a big battle at all, but something that seems to be within the capabilities of the artillery he has to deliver. And, and you think, you look at this plan and you think, well, this is promising. He, he has learned some stuff in 1915 after all, and he's gone back to first principles here with his plan. Um, the problem for him again here, though, is Douglas Haig. Haig doesn't like this plan at all because there is no exploitation built into it uh, on Rawlinson's part. Haig is now thinking in rather Napoleonic terms, in, in terms of distant objectives. He thinks back home. Uh, maybe on the first day or the first few days of battle. Um, they don't take it, of course, until uh, very late in the peace when the Germans retreat uh, and insist that Rawlinson revise his plan to include capturing the German second and third lines as well at the Somme. Um, and, of course, by attempting to do that, spreading his artillery resources so much thinner. What you expect from Rawlinson at this stage is that he would enter the strongest objections to Haig's ideas on the grounds that the artillery can't do the job. This is where historians, uh, us included, have a problem with him. He doesn't do that. He argues to Haig that you can't expect the Kitchener Army's green troops to advance as far as Haig wants them to, to the second and third line. So he's arguing against Haig's plan on the grounds of the, of the experience of the infantry, not on the ability of the artillery to deliver these defences to the infantry. Um, quite a different approach. So having established a principle seemingly based on the power of the guns, he then switches and, and tries to defend it uh, on the experience of the infantry. It's a strange twist. Haig won't have this. He says, look, uh, these soldiers are fresh. Uh, they're, uh, all they do, have to do is follow the barrage. Uh, they'll be fine. Um, let's go for the third line, at which point Rawlinson uh, capitulates. 
as to some extent he must. Haig is the commander-in-chief, after all. Um, so, you, you, again, you have this strange dialogue between the two men, um, seemingly around the artillery, but actually around either the infantry or, in Haig's world, the cavalry, which are going to charge through to Bapoma and points north. Um, so there's no fixity of purpose about Rawlinson. There is no determination that the artillery is the determinant of victory. And if the guns can't do the job, uh, then the, both the infantry and the cavalry are in for a pretty awful time. It's always struck me that the Somme seems to go between a, a decisive breakthrough battle or a battle of attrition. And it never seems to make up its mind. And it seems to be a bit sort of slightly a combination of both. I'm, obviously, I'm no expert on this. But does Rawlin play into that sort of dilemma? Is he, is he attricting German troops or is he aiming to break through and, and end the war by Christmas again? It's certainly Haig is aiming to do that at various points. I mean, Haig is not an attritional general. People uh, brand him that, but he's not. He's a breakthrough general. Um, he's always planning breakthroughs. July the 14th, um, September the 15th, and even in October, uh, he had plans for a breakthrough. The cavalry amassed. If you want to know what Haig is doing, look at what happens to the cavalry. If they're massed for a breakthrough, that's what he's intending. Uh, attrition is what happens while he's making plans. Um, it's a strange uh, thing. Rawlinson, on the other hand, is it's, it's a hand-to-mouth business, the sum for Rawlinson. The battle seems to escape his control, and, and perhaps there's a reason for that. It's just too big uh, for a divisional general in 1914 to comprehend. The battle seems to take on a life of its own. Haig is aware of this, um, says to Rawlinson, with the famous words, there's something wanting in the methods you are employing. But then when Rawlinson fails to react to that, uh, Haig himself does nothing about it either. So the battle goes on day after day, small narrow front attacks, um, battalions, sometimes no more than four or five on any particular day, attacking a tiny little piece of the German trench system, allowing the Germans to concentrate their artillery against them in the most effective way. And it goes on like that day after day after day. The big battles, July the 14th, September the 15th, September the 25th, are rare events. It's the other days we should concentrate on because there are so many more of them. So that leads me to the question, does Rawlinson learn anything from this battle? I mean, obviously, the British Army starts to, to reorganise with FS-143, creeping barrage and various other doctrinal changes that come in in early 1917. But does he take away any sort of um, learning points from this, this, this battle? I think he does, but it's very hard to say because he's not really employed in 1917 at all. Um, he thinks he's going to be employed at Passchendaele 13. Uh, but in the end, he isn't uh, because Haig thinks he's insufficiently uh, a thruster and Haig wants someone like Goff um, to take command of the thing and Rawlinson is, is overlooked, except he's going to do the D-Day landing from the sea uh, behind the lines with the 1st Division, which thankfully, we're all concerned, doesn't take place. Um, Rawlinson, I mean, there's a lot to absorb from the song, it has to be said. There is... Uh, the coming of the Creeping Barrage, where the Creeping Barrage is now fired in front of almost every uh, attack. 
there, there is the tank and the difficulty of adding that instrument into uh, a creeping barrage and, and a barrage plan. And they make a complete hash of that. It's not surprising that they do. The tank is a new weapon. It, it's very difficult to get the, uh, the balance right between the barrage and what they think the tank is capable of doing. So there's a lot for them to absorb. These are entirely new ways in warfare, and in the case of the tank, an entirely new weapon. It's not surprising that it takes some time for these lessons to sink in. And one thing I've, I've always wondered, is Rawlinson and Haig thinking in sort of the, in the fourth dimension in terms of, of the air war as well, but, and how this shapes the ground war? I don't think they, they are. I mean, they, they, they're aware that aircraft are extraordinarily useful. I mean, spotting for the artillery uh, and aerial photography is, is becoming a bigger and bigger uh, factor. Uh, but there's no, uh, I think, endeavour to integrate, if you will, the Air Force um, uh, into, uh, into the land battle. Uh, it's just something that they, uh, an additional add-on that, that's handy for artillery and so on. But that's about it. So I don't think aircraft play a big role. So we get to March, we get to spring 1918. Rawlinson, as you said, doesn't yeah. very much during 1917. Now, Rawlinson takes over from uh, Hubert Goff and he becomes the commander of the 5th British Army. Now, he's instrumental yeah. in planning the actions and advances of the 100 days. That's the offensive from uh, August yeah. through to the armistice. Can you tell us about his planning and preparation of this and how his previous experience shapes this sort of new style of warfare? Yeah. I mean, what Rawlinson, what the 1918 uh, events show is that Rawlinson has absorbed some lessons from the Somme, which was the last big battle he was involved in, and has been watching mainly from uh, uh, the sidelines, either at 30 or at, uh, when he's sent the Supreme War Council of Versailles, watching from the sidelines uh, what developments are happening. Um, he takes, it seems to me, quite a few of those developments on board um, there in terms of artillery accuracy. The artillery in 1918 is much more accurate than it's been at the Somme uh, due to the invention of sound ranging, flash spotting and various other uh, technical methods. Um, they are more aware now of what the tank can do and, and more reasonably about what the tank can't do. Um, the tank... I think is well integrated in the 1918 battles. It's used to push uh, advances further than they would have otherwise gone, but nothing else. Um, and when you come up against a situation like the Hindenburg Line, the tanks are hardly used at all. So they're quite realistic, I think, about what the tank can do and what it can't. And uh, Rawlinson is certainly uh, keen uh, on the massed artillery uh, you can see that as it's used in the uh, 1918 battles. I mean, first uh, by uh, Monash uh, in a small way at Hamel and, and later in, in a big way by the 4th Army at uh, Amiens. Um, these, these are important breakthroughs uh, in warfare. In, in effect, the all-arms uh, battle at Amiens is repeated by the British not, right, not just right through the First World War, but right through the Second World War as well. I mean, Montgomery uh, at Alamein, at Caen, 
uh, and in Northwestern Europe, with one exception, uses Amiens as a model uh, for his battles. So uh, Rawlinson deserves some credit here uh, for these 1918 uh, plans. In Australia, we've usurped them and said Mayesh did everything and Rawlinson just stood around. But that's not right. That's not fair to our, to our man. We must give him his due. He was the army commander at Amiens. It was his plan. And when Haig again tries to extend the objectives to a 20-mile, 25-mile uh, thing, Rawlinson just ignores him. Um, and he's got, and this is where Monash and Curry, the Canadian, are important, uh, they will back Rawlinson up in against Haig uh, on these matters, and they do. Which, which brings us to the conclusion um, point, how effective was Rawlinson um, in terms of his generalship in the context of the Great War? I think he was one of the better generals on the Western Front, which doesn't mean he was a Montgomery or a Slim. Um, he didn't have their fixity of purpose. I mean, Montgomery at Alamein is absolutely clear about what this British army can do and what it can't do. He has no time for the armour at all. Alamein is a concentrated artillery um, operation. And Monty knows that if you do that, the British Army will do its bit. Uh, Rawlinson never reaches that level of fixity. He is much more, he is much more um, swaying in the wind. He's got Haig to deal with. Um, Haig has got Lord George to deal with. Um, and Lord George won't give Haig the troops that he, requ he requests in 1918. So the whole British army has to manage somehow with less troops than they'd hoped for in a new in new ways of warfare. Um, so Rawlinson has a lot to manage here. He says, chilling phrase to Haig, I think it's in uh, August uh, 1918, now that we're running out of men, we must turn to machines uh, as our salvation. And this is, this is said in terms of planning Amiens which, you know, is a great use of machines, not just tanks, but artillery, um, uh, uh, grenade, rifle grenades and Lewis guns, the, the works. Um, they are at last turning to machines, um, which they've had on hand for some time, uh, but now forms the centrepiece of their military operations and are used, I must say, in a more sophisticated way by the British Army than the Germans. The Germans never developed this sort of method. I mean, Ludendorff really does hack a hole and hope the rest follows in March and April 1918. And what follows is nothing at all. Um, the infantry run out of steam and they run out of fire support. That never happens in the British advances in 1918. The fire support is always there. Do you think, I mean, I was wondering about the, the, the sort of respective roles of the commander versus the machine that they have. And do you think the First World War is a, is a victory of the machine over the commander? Or does the commander still have an important role directing the machine? Look, I think, I think the way they integrate the machines into the, into the British Army is, is quite sophisticated. I mean, Amiens and those battles that follow are all arms battles. They are using everything from Lewis guns up uh, to uh, uh, heavy guns uh, and, and tanks 
in an integrated way. This is quite sophisticated and not improved on, I think, uh, by Montgomery in the, in the, in the Second World War. Um, this is his model. And you've got to say, for a, a, a model to last, not just through the First World War, but the second as well, and prove successful, it's fairly good going. And I think this is where Rawlinson deserves a bit of credit here for planning these battles in 1918. After all, if they'd gone wrong, he'd have been blamed. Um, they went right. And he hasn't quite got the credit he deserves, I think, for those. So what happened to Rawlinson after the war? How long did he survive um, during, the, during the interwar period? Not long. Um, he's sent to Russia. Uh, in the uh, ill-fated intervention against the Bolsheviks. Um, he, he comes home um, and he's slated to be, uh, by mid-1920s, the next chief of the Imperial General Staff, but 1925 he dies. Um, and so his post-war career is cut short, I think greatly to the detriment of the interwar British Army. I think he'd have been a good CIGS, uh, but we'll never know. And my final question is, where can people read your work on Rawlinson? Um, I think it's still in print. <laughs> Pen and Sword paperback, uh, Command on the Western Front. Um, I've got the hardback here, which I'm sure you can't get anywhere um, these days. But the, the Pen and Sword paperback is around. Um, not that we get any royalties from it, but uh, it's, it's around somewhere. Yeah, I, I think still in print, yeah. Which is not bad going for a book written in the... 1992. I can confirm it is available on, on the interweb. So um, people okay. direct your, your, your expenditure <laughs> and your Christmas list there. And on, the, on that bombshell, Robin, I say thank you very much for helping us out on this 250th edition. Not at all, uh, Tom. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS21. Until next time.